0: I'll try not to keep you too long in your seats there, but at least they're comfortable. Let's go to the Lord as we begin and pray. Our Father, as we continue in your presence, we turn now to your word. We love your word. We love it because it reveals yourself to us and reveals your word, your will to us. So we, we come, Lord, with anticipation, and yet we come with complete dependence on you because we know that I cannot preach your word and we cannot comprehend your word apart from the working of your Holy Spirit. So we ask, Holy Spirit, open our, our eyes to behold wonderful things from the scriptures and grant us faith to believe and to obey. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> Turn one with your Bibles to Exodus chapter 16. Exodus 16. <clears throat> we will make it to John. We're going to start in Exodus. <clears throat> the last time I preached on Sunday morning, I preached on John 6 and the feeding of the 5,000. So I want to pick up where we left off there, and I want to consider the events that immediately followed that miracle that very evening and the very next morning. So remember with me what happened. Remember that Jesus and the disciples uh, were in Galilee, on the west side of the Sea of Galilee. But uh, to get some rest, they, they went over to the east side to a desolate place, But when they got there, they found that the crowd already learned where they were going and the crowd had gotten there ahead of them. So when they went ashore, Jesus spent another day healing their sick and teaching them. And as the evening came, the disciples came to Jesus and they said, Jesus, you need to send the crowd away because it's getting late and they need to go somewhere to get something to eat. And Jesus said, no, don't send them away. You give them something to eat. And he turned to Philip and he said, Philip, where are we going to get bread to feed all these people? Philip said, even if we had a hundred denarius worth of bread, it wouldn't even be enough for everybody to have even a small piece. And so he said, well, what do you have? So they went and looked and they came back and Andrew reported back, uh, there's a little boy here who by some miracle hasn't eaten his lunch yet. He has five loaves and two fish, five little biscuits and two fish. And Jesus said, okay, have the people sit down. So the people, 5,000 men plus women and children, so it could have been 10 to 15,000 people, sat down in groups of 50 to 100. And Jesus gave thanks and he broke those five loaves and two fish and he gave them to the disciples, and the disciples passed them out. Now I want you to try to imagine what it was like to be there. If you were one of those in the crowd, probably a Jewish man or woman or boy or girl, who witnessed that, who experienced that, how would it have happened? Okay, we know that there were 12 baskets, so I'm assuming each disciple had a basket, so I imagine that Jesus broke the, f- the bread and the fish and gave each disciple a chunk of bread and a chunk of fish. And so the disciples then went to each group of 150, and I, I doubt if they went to each individual person personally, but I think they probably broke a piece off, gave it to somebody, and they passed it around. And so one person would take a piece and pass it, another person would take a piece. And it says in John 6, that they ate as much as they wanted. How did that happen? So I think the miracle happened in their very hand. When they were holding this little chunk of bread and they took a piece off and ate it, or a piece of fish, they still had a chunk of bread and a chunk of fish, and kept eating, it says, until they ate their fill. So they saw it happen right in their hands, I think. Now, if that happened, if you were there and you were a Jew, what historical event would you think of? You would think of Exodus 16, which I'm not at. You should be. All right, Exodus 16. In Exodus 16, you remember that the children of Israel are just, are just in their second month out of, after leaving Egypt and they're already grumbling. We'll pick it up in verse two. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, would that we had died in the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt, where we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. And you have brought us out here into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am about to rain, and this is the key phrase you want to remember, bread from heaven. I'm about to rain bread from heaven for you, and the people shall go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test test them whether they will walk in my law or not. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it shall be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to the people of Israel, evening you shall know that it is the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, and in the morning you shall see the glory of the Lord, because he has heard your grumbling against the Lord. For what are we that you grumble against us? And then skip down to verse 13. In the evening... Quell came up and covered the camp, and in the morning dew lay on the camp. And when the dew had gone up, there was on the face of the wilderness a fine flake-like thing, fine as frost, on the ground. And the people of Israel saw it, and they said to one another, What is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, It is the bread that the Lord has given you to eat. This is what the Lord has commanded. Gather it, each one of you, as much as he can eat. He shall take an omer, each one, according to what he can eat, according to the number of the persons that each of you have in his tent. And the people of Israel did so. They gathered some more, some more, some less. And when they measured it with an omer, whoever gathered much had nothing left over. Whoever gathered little had no lack. Each of them gathered as much as he could eat. Exactly what happened in the miracle in John 6. Go down to verse 31. Now the house of Israel called its name manna. It was like corn seed, white, and the taste of it was like wafers made with honey. And Moses said, this is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer of it be kept throughout your generations so that they may see the bread with which I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses Moses said to Aaron, take a jar and put an omer of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout all generations. I know that's where their mind went because we're gonna see it back in John six. So turn over to John six now. In verses one through 13, Uh, Jesus has fed the 5,000, as I just described to you, with the five barley loaves and two fish. That evening, this is what happens. We'll pick it up. Let's start in verse 12. We'll go back a little to verse 12. And when they'd eaten their fill, he told his disciples, gather up the leftover fragments that nothing may be lost. So they gathered them up and filled 12 baskets with fragments from the five barley loaves left by those who had eaten. When the people saw that the sign that he had done, they said, this indeed is the prophet who is coming into the world. They didn't just say he's a prophet, but they're referring specifically to what Moses said in Deuteronomy 18, 15, that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among yourselves. So they're thinking, this guy is a prophet, just like Moses is a prophet. He can do the same thing that Moses can do, which is what? Feed them, not just once, but Moses did it for 40 years. That's what they're thinking, all right? So, of course, they're going to want to make him king. So in verse 15, when... Perceiving then that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to the mountain by himself. Verse 22 is the next morning. On the next day, the crowd remained on the other side of the sea, saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. These would probably be merchants who were looking to make some monies. So people need to get to the other side, so all these boats come. Verse 24, so when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, When did you come here? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw the signs, but because, why? You ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you, for on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, this is the work of God that you believe in him who he has sent. So they said to him, what sign do you do? Okay, you see already what's in their mind. All right, if it was just a sign they needed, they had plenty of them. Okay, the day before he had healed all day long. He fed the 5,000, but they want another sign. What sign? do you do that we may believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers, okay, here it is. Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness, as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. In their mind, they're thinking Moses. Moses gave them food for 40 years. You're a prophet just like Moses, do it again. Then Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my Father gives you true bread from heaven. Okay, that true is a very key word there. It's not talking about true or false. It's talking about real versus something that's just a shadow. Okay, something that just foreshadows what's gonna happen. So in other words, when God the Father gave the manna in the wilderness, it was a type or was a shadow of the true bread, the real bread that he was gonna someday give, which would be Jesus, who would not just satisfy the hungering of their bellies, but would satisfy, who would satisfy their very soul. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, sir, give us this, this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall not thirst. So that means that day before when Jesus fed the 5,000, He was trying not just to fill their bellies, but he was trying to teach them something. He was trying to reveal himself to to them that he was indeed the true bread that God has sent down from heaven. He was trying to teach them that, and they completely missed it, didn't they? They missed it totally. They were thinking, just like Nicodemus, and the woman at the well, they were thinking on a physical plane. Nicodemus was thinking being born again is going into your mother's womb again and being born. The woman at the well was thinking that living water was something that you could scoop up in a bucket. They missed it. And so Jesus is gonna spend the rest of this discourse in John six to clarify and to explain to them What they missed, that is the true spiritual meaning and the significance of the true bread from heaven. What it means that Jesus is the bread of life, the living bread. So I think you can see that the flow of this chapter makes sense, right? He does the miracle, feeds the 5,000, the next day he's going to clarify and explain the significance of it. And so after I preached that sermon last time um, on the Feeding of the 5000s, I started to dig in to this discourse, and it's a fantastic discourse. There's great truth in it, and I couldn't wait to preach on it. It's life-changing, it's theology-changing, but no matter how hard I dug into it, I kept being distracted by the storm. It's like this verses 16 to 21 is like just stuck in there into the middle. And what does it have to do with the bread from heaven? You know, and I tried to look away from it and go to the other page and get it. I I couldn't get away from it. So what does this storm have to do with it? So the title of my sermon is The Storm and the Bread from Heaven. So let's read those verses that I skipped, that I was trying to skip and not preach on. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. The sea became rough, because a strong wind was blowing. When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat and they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. So you're probably thinking, well, that sorta explains you know the curiosity of the crowd as to how Jesus got to the other side. Remember they asked him, When did you get here? Well, Jesus doesn't even tell them about it. When they say, When did you get here? all he does is just launch into his rebuke, you're seeking me because I filled your belly because you're hungry again. Well, it sort of tells us what happened that night. That's true, you know, how Jesus and the disciples got from one point to the other, but that's pretty rare. I mean, the disciples and the Gospels are moving all around. We're very rarely told how they get from one point to the other. There's some reason why John puts this here. Of course, John himself experienced that he was there. The key is to remember that the feeding of the 5,000 was not just a test for the disciples. So last time when we looked at the feeding of the 5,000, we looked at it as a test, right? But it was not just a test, it was a teaching. Jesus trying to teach them something. And remember, John says at the beginning of the gospel that uh, we, uh, the word became flesh and we beheld his glory. And every time Jesus does a miracle, he's revealing himself, he's revealing his glory to them, and that's what he was doing in the feeding of the 5,000, showing that he was the true bread from heaven, and the crowd totally missed it. But here's the thing, not only did the crowd miss it, the disciples totally missed it. They didn't get it. So I know they didn't get it, because Mark tells us in his account of this storm, Mark says this in Mark 6.52, for they, for the disciples, did not understand about the loaves, but their hearts were hardened. And they missed it too. They didn't get it. They didn't get the truths that Jesus was teaching. And so Jesus is now going to give, he's going to use another teaching tool, the storm, to teach them what they missed in the feeding of the 5,000 it's exactly the same truths that he's going to elaborate on in the rest of John 6. And it's truths that the disciples missed and it's truths that they can't miss because there are truths that they need for the storm that's coming. Because there's a major storm coming for these disciples in order to weather the storm, they need to know these truths. I'm not talking about the storm here in John 6. Okay, look at, in John 6, look at verse 4. Another verse that seems to be just stuck in there, but now the Passover, the feast of the Jews, was at hand. So you say, well, Passover that's not a big deal right I mean Jesus and the disciples have been going to the Passover every year year. I mean from since Jesus was a little boy we know he's been going to the Passover every year the disciples are the same thing but this Passover is not like any other Passover right this Passover is when the true Lamb of God Jesus is going to lay down his life He's going to die on a cruel Roman cross. And when that happens, the disciples' world is just going to be totally crushed. Everything they thought they believed, everything they thought they knew, it's all going to be crushed and Jesus is trying to prepare them for the storm and so in reality this storm in John 6 is storm prep for the real storm that's coming the storm prep for the disciples and it's storm prep for us you may be even now going through a storm if you're not you will someday And you need to know these truths to get through the storm. So before I get into those, I'm going to give you three truths that will help you get through a storm. Before I get to those, I want to give you some general information about storms. So if I were to ask you to think about famous storms in the Bible, most of you would very quickly come up with the story of Jonah, right? So that's a famous storm. Uh, God told Jonah to go to Nineveh. Jonah went the opposite way, right, to down to Joppa to go to Tarshish. And so God sent the storm to stop him, to turn him around, and to get him to obey. His storm, that storm, was a result of his disobedience. God does, and sometimes he, he does use storms in our lives for that reason, but this storm is not like that. And if you try to put every storm into that category, and some Christians do, that you know, if, if you're living the Christian right, life right and you're not sinning, all you're going to know is prosperity and health, and it's not true. Storms come to obedient Christians. So when you read verse 16, it says, when evening came, the disciples went down to the sea and got into a boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. The thing that John doesn't tell you is that they got into that boat to go to the other side because Jesus told them to. They were in the path of obedience. Matthew, um, in his account, says this, and those who ate were about 5,000 men, besides women and children, immediately... Jesus made the disciples get into the boat and go before him to the other side while he dismissed the crowd. They were in the path of obedience when the storm hit. Storms come to obedient Christians. Storms come though at the most inconvenient times, don't they? The reason that the disciples were, and Jesus were over on the east side of the Sea of Galilee was because um, over in, around Capernaum, the the ministry was so busy, they were spending every day, Jesus was healing and teaching, they were so busy that Mark tells us they didn't even have time to eat or to rest. And so Jesus takes them over to a desolate place to get some rest. And of course, when they get there, the crowd's already there, so they spend another day healing and teaching and at the end of the day, feeding the 5,000. And now Jesus sends them into a boat to row across, probably about a five-mile row across to the other side. Mark tells us about the storm that when Jesus came walking to them, that it was the fourth watch of the night. That means it was between 3 and 6 a.m. So it's, it's dark, they're tired, they haven't had sleep, they haven't had rest, and that's when the storm comes. They come when we least expect it, when most inconvenient. When I preached last time on the uh, feeding the 5,000 and being a test, I, I, I said, I don't like tests. I'm going to say the same thing about storms. I don't like storms. They're hard. Um, Mark describes the storm this way. He said, the disciples were making headway painfully and the wind was against them. That word for against them means harassing, harassing them. So you can read that, (laughs) they were making headway painfully and the wind was harassing them. Isn't that how storms are? They're painful, they're harassing. I don't like storms. But let me read you what Mark also says in that verse. He said, and after he had taken leave of them, that means he took the disciples down to the shore and sent them off into the sea, to the storm. He went up to the mountain to pray And when evening came, the boat was on the sea, and he was alone on the land, and he saw that they were making headway painfully, for the wind (coughs) is against them." So no matter how painful, no matter how harassing, Jesus knows, he sees exactly every detail of the pain and the hassle that it is for us. We know now that he is exalted at the Father's right hand and he is praying for us. So if you are able to go through the storm with the eyes of your faith open, you will be able to see his glory. And here are three truths that will help you do that. I'm gonna read these verses again and this time I want you, from your knowledge, okay, this is recorded in Matthew and in Mark, so you know a lot more about the storm than just what's recorded here. So When I read this, I want you to think about what it is that John does not tell us about the storm. All right. When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into the boat and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark and Jesus had not yet come to them. <clears throat> the sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing When they had rowed about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea coming near the boat and they were frightened. And he said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Then they were glad to take him into the boat and immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. Seems to me like John leaves out the best parts, right? What didn't he say? He didn't tell us about Peter walking on the water. I mean, that's a huge thing, right? And he doesn't tell us about the fact that Jesus stilled the storm. His only focus is on just one thing, and that's Jesus, right? Jesus came and Jesus got into the boat with them. Jesus said, it is I. And that's what they missed in the feeding of the 5,000. It wasn't the fact that they had full bellies, it was the fact that here before them, the one who did the miracle is the bread that God sent from heaven to satisfy their soul. And just as their bodies hunger for bread and food, so their soul, our souls hunger for Jesus, and the only thing that will satisfy that hunger is Jesus Christ. And that's what John wants us to see. It's Jesus that came to them. Because look at what he said in verse 20 when he got there to the boat. It is I, it is I. So this first truth is that Jesus is our satisfying treasure. It's not whether we walk on the water, it's not whether the storm rages on or is still, it's just Jesus, he's the one who satisfies our soul. So listen to what Jesus is gonna say in this discourse, okay? Look at verse 35, Jesus said to them what? I am the bread of life. Verse 48, I am the bread of, of life. Verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. That's what the disciples missed, that's what the crowd missed, That is Jesus himself who satisfies our souls. And he still is the living bread of life. Are you feasting on him? Are you daily spending time alone with him? Because only he can satisfy your soul. And it doesn't matter how much the storm rages around you, he satisfies your soul. When you're amidst the storm, he will satisfy your soul. Not the ceasing of the storm, not walking on water, Jesus himself. He is our satisfying treasure. (laughs) Second truth, I want you to look again a little closer at verse 20. So when Jesus gets to them walking on the water, he said to them, it is I. Now, you're thinking, well, you just said that. Well, you're going to have to hear it in Greek. So, some of you might have your Greek New Testament. You can turn to it and see that Jesus says to them when he gets there simply, Ego, me." It's exactly what he's going to say in the discourse. He's going to say, I am Ego, me, the bread of life. And matter of fact, every one of the uh, famous I Am's of John. That's the way he starts them. Ego, me, I am the bread of life. Or I am. You know where that come from? comes from, right? What Jesus is saying when he says that is, I am God. Because in Exodus 3, when God appeared to Moses from the burning bush he said this when the Lord saw that Moses turned aside to see God called to him from the bush Moses Moses and he said here I am then he said do not come near take off your sandals for the place on which you are standing is holy ground and he said I am the God of your father the God of Abraham the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob then Moses said to God, "'If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, "'The God of your fathers has sent me to you,' "'and they ask, what is his name? "'What shall I tell them?' "'God said to Moses, I am who I am.'" The Greek translation would be ego, a me, I am. Say this to the people of Israel, "'I am has sent you, sent me to you.'" God said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, the Lord Yahweh, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob has sent me to you, me to you, this is my name forever, thus I will be remembered throughout all generations. So that's exactly who Jesus is. He is our sovereign God, he is Yahweh the same God of the Old Testament. He's the same God, the same God who was speaking to Moses from the burning bush, was standing there, walking on the water in the midst of the storm, speaking to those disciples. And he said, I am, do not be afraid. So if you read um, about the Sea of Galilee, you'll, you'll read that these kinds of storms were common because of, the geog- because of the geography of that area. Uh, the Sea of Galilee is 682 feet below sea level and it's surrounded by hills with narrow uh, valleys and gorges and, and wind comes racing, rushing through those narrow ga- uh, gorges and valleys down into the sea and causes these storms. That's not the reason for this storm, is it? Just as surely as Jesus sent those disciples into the boat, into the sea, just as surely he sent that storm. He may have used natural means, but he sent the storm because he is sovereign. And that's what they missed in the feeding of the 5,000. Who can feed 5,000 plus people with five loaves and two fish? Only God can, Yahweh. Ego a me, he is our sovereign God, and he's the one who was standing there talking to them. So I'm old enough. Um, I didn't say I'm old. Uh, Thirty or forty years ago, I would have thought somebody my age was, but I am old enough to have been through a few storms, and I can tell you that the hardest truth to hang on to and to stand on. In the middle of the storm is this very truth. I think the, the reason for that is because this side of glory, we only see by faith. We don't see by sight, so we can't see a lot of things. The why, the when, the how, the how long, the where. Just like the disciples in that storm, we're in the dark, right? Except for faith, but... The disciples did see one thing that night, didn't they? What did they see? They saw Jesus. They saw their sovereign God. And he is our sovereign God. He is our ego, a Do not be afraid. So that means nothing enters your life that is outside his sovereign purposes for you. And there is nothing that enters your life that is devoid of his working in your life. You get those two things? You got to get those to understand the sovereignty of God. Okay? So one of my favorite verses in this whole chapter is uh, back in verse uh, 6. It's where he was talking to Philip, you know, and uh, where are we going to get enough bread? And he said this to test him, verse 6 says, for he himself knew what he would do. Okay, the same thing applies to the storm. When Jesus sent them into the sea in that boat, he knew what he was gonna do. Didn't say he knows what's gonna happen. He knew what he was gonna do, all right? He's he's working in your life and he's accomplishing his purposes. Those two things, the work of God and the will of God, John weaves together throughout this book. And you're going to see that when we get into, especially later in chapter 6 here, like in verse 38. Jesus says, for I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing but raise it up on that last day. He is working, accomplishing his will in your life. And every single thing that he sends your way is part of that. And those are the two very things that usually you tend to doubt in the middle of the storm. You know, how can God really do this? Why does it? yeah. But he is our sovereign God. We need to know that in the storm. Jesus is our satisfying treasure, and Jesus is our sovereign God. Finally, you need to know to get through a storm that Jesus is your secure assurance. So I just finished saying, we don't know the why, the when, the how, the where, but we do know our final destination, don't we? Look at verse 21. Then they were glad to take him into the boat, and what happened? Immediately they were at the land to which they were going. Isn't that great? From the moment Jesus told them to go to the other side, them reaching that destination was absolutely guaranteed. Not because they were experienced fishermen, you know, experienced sailors and had a lot of experience on the Sea of Galilee. It's true, they did. The only reason they made it, and the reason that it was guaranteed is because Jesus willed it. Jesus said it. And the moment he said it, it was secure, it was sure. Jesus is our secure assurance. And he's gonna get us to glory no matter what storm hits us along the way. Jesus will come back to that idea a lot or in John. John recorded it. For example, John 10:27 to 29 says, My sheep, hear my voice. And I know them, they follow me, and I give them eternal life. They will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my Father's hand. My Father has given to them is greater than me. No one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. He says in John fourteen, let not your hearts be troubled, believe in God, believe also in me, and my father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, I would have told you, why would I have I told you that I go to prepare a place for you? If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So these are the truths that Jesus was teaching in the feeding of the 5,000 that the disciples missed. They're the truths that the crowd missed. I pray that you will not miss these truths. Jesus is the true bread from heaven, the living bread of life. Jesus is our satisfying treasure. He's our sovereign God. He's our secure assurance. Those are truths that we desperately need for everyday life, especially in the midst of a storm. You know, there's one thing about bread. We need it, how often? Daily, don't we? We need it daily. So Jesus is not saying when the storm hits, you know, then start feeding on me as your daily bread. He's saying, to be ready for the storm, He needs to be our daily bread, that every day we need to be getting alone with Him, meditating on His word, praying, praising Him, feeding on His presence, finding our satisfaction only in Him. And we need to be in His word, getting to know Him, and what it means that He is sovereign, that He's working out His will and His work in our lives. And we need to daily Focus, refocus our hearts and our minds on Jesus' return and our eternal home with him. Only then will you be prepared for the storm. Let's pray. Our Lord, right now we do praise you and worship you. You are our satisfying treasure. Nothing satisfies our souls but you. So draw us daily nearer to you. We praise you that you're our sovereign God. You rule and you reign by your might and your power. Help us to bow to and to trust your will and your work in our lives. And how we praise you that, we have, that you have secured our salvation. Help us to rejoice in knowing that you are coming to take us to where you are. And so we pray, Lord Jesus, come. We pray in your powerful and holy name, amen.